You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have done the best we can to create, recreate the entire month of May in one hour. Our guest today is Donald Davidson, historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and probably the most beloved figure, along with Jim Neighbors, of the Inter- Indianapolis Motor Speedway of the past several decades. Thank you very much, Donald, for coming on the podcast. Well, you're very welcome. I don't know how to react to what you just said. I think you're a little bit over the top there, but thank you. <laughs> well, I told a few people that you were coming on, and you know, a lot of times with my podcast, I get, oh, that's cool, or you know, that's an interesting guest. But I told a few people you were coming on, and the universal response I received, universal was, ooh, I can't wait for that one. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, you've you. made your mark here in the city. You've made your mark with our premier event. I know you're very uh, well known through your media and radio, but I want to make sure people know just a little bit about your background before you came to Indianapolis. Uh, you were born in? I was born in Salisbury in Wiltshire in the south of England. A big, big historical, very, very much of a historical uh, area. Uh, Salisbury Cathedral is the thing that's probably uh, arguably most famous. Uh, the Or uh, Stonehenge, which is about 10 miles from the city center, I think. It's just up the way and wasn't very far from. Uh, where I was raised, in fact, there was not only did we go there several times before it was all cordoned off, but uh, when I was a young lad, I think at least twice on a Sunday, we would actually walk from our home over to Stonehenge. It was quite a track, and then we would take the bus back. But um, um, it's just obviously uh, you know, very, very historical. And then the uh, uh, the cathedral... Uh, was built in 1220, so by uh, American standards, that's really, really old. And uh, mm-hmm. and then I kid people by telling them, well, actually, that's the new cathedral to replace the one that they had before that. <laughs> well, if you've if this podcast is about Indianapolis and racing in the month of May, but 
if you have never seen a picture of the Salisbury Cathedral, please look it up. It is breathtaking. And not only that, it's also famous for having one of the surviving copies of the Magna Carta. That's correct, yes. There's also there's a clock in there, which I think is still operating, that goes back to about the time that the cathedral was built. So it's like an 800-year-old clock. But uh, we lived up on the top of a hill, about two miles north of town, and so um, I could I had a straight view, I had a wonderful view uh, of Salisbury Cathedral, and then it would be floodlit at night. And then when I went to grammar school, I actually went on the cathedral grounds, and and uh, there were actually two schools inside the area that they called the close. This is more of a history lesson than you wanted, but. You might personally enjoy this. I did not know until I went back with my kids in later years that the wall around the cathedral area, which is known as the Close, was actually built out of the stones that came from the original cathedral. I did not know that all the time that I was going there. But um, uh, the uh, my I went to Bishop Wordsworth School, and uh, that was inside of the cathedral grounds. And very close to where part of the school was, was a house where George Frederick Handel uh, had lived Mm. for a while and uh, played music. And across the way was an old uh, Tudor pub called the King's Arms. And I fantasized that that, uh, Handel probably nipped over there for a quick one after, you know, (laughs) he'd been composing music. But... Anyway, it was just a, a very, very picturesque and, uh, uh, you know, just just a, a grand place to uh, to have an education. I wasn't a very good student, but uh, my English teacher for two years was William Golding, who had written Lord, oh, Lord of, of the Flies. Flies. And so that was a whole other experience. In fact, we could talk, we could do the whole hour here and never get to motor racing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were off forced or required to read Lord of the Flies when we were in grade school? Yes. Well, but the, uh, the, the book was out. Actually, it was published. Uh, well, I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but um, um, the, the book was published, but he wasn't internationally renowned yet. That came a little bit later. Uh, I, I had actually left school when he was really starting to um, uh, become very well known, but uh, and uh, he was a very interesting teacher. His his nickname was Scruff, and I've got several stories about him. But um, uh, as I say, I wasn't a very good student, but he was actually very kind to me with his marks. <laughs> After you both became famous, did you reconnect? I actually, uh, yes. Years later, I um, when I was uh, I'd gone back, uh, you know, when my mother was still living and family over there, and uh, I actually uh, contacted several of my teachers, and uh, many of them were just very, very pleased to reconnect with me, because um, I, don't, I just uh, hit it off with, with some of them. Uh, he had known my father, but uh, I have to say that when I uh, tried to look him up, he was uh, pleasant, but a little distant, not as forthcoming as some of the other fellows were. But that's okay. When reading about your career, 
it becomes clear that, that racing is something that struck your fancy when you were younger, but originally yep. it was not necessarily what you would call American racing. It was more of kind of a European Grand Prix style racing. Oh, Am absolutely. I remembering this? Yes. Well, I explain it this way. Um, I the, the, I was aware of drivers uh, from you know by just from being very very young because you would hear the names all the time and and I describe it this way. Uh, Britain, you know, it's not a very large country, and uh, the Brits always embraced motorsport, always did. And uh, so they were very, you know, pro-British and so on and so forth. But you would hear these names, and it was rather like growing up in Indiana and, and knowing the basketball players because you'd hear yeah, the names great... whether you cared about it or not. And so I knew a lot of race drivers by name, but then also, again, I'm, I'm dating myself, uh, that the, not only were there motorcycle races that were well-known, but test pilots. Uh, and we don't do that anymore, but, uh, you know, there were several test pilots in England that were just well-known like, like astronauts. So, anyway, the thing is, and, and my dad was interested in it casually, but most, you know, males were. And uh, so I always knew about it, but I didn't, I, it didn't really, uh, it just, it bit me when I was... Um, is there suddenly clicked, or however you want to uh, to phrase it, when I was just entering my teens, and uh, then I wanted to know more about it, and I was fascinated by the names, and there was something about seeing names in print, and so then I found that I could memorize results. So I went from, you know, the winners of a Grand Prix of the Grand Prix season for a season, which might in those days be like seven or eight races. So it was fairly easy to remember the winners. And then I would do the previous year and then I would do the seconds and thirds. And at that time, probably more of an explanation than you want. But at the time, uh, this was the early days of the World Driving Championship, which is now the Formula One Championship. And, uh, there was no United States Grand Prix at the time, and so the Indianapolis 500 counted towards the World Driving Championship, and upon reflection, it didn't make any sense because the specifications were different, and certainly the participants were different. But uh, when I saw a table of how the points were applied, and I'm looking down, and I thought, well, Sterling Moss, I know him, and Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne, I know them, but um, who's Troy Rutman and who's <laughs> Bill Bukovic and who's Sam Hanks? And, you know, I know about Maseratis and Ferraris and the Blonde Exhaust Special, John Zink Special, what's this? And so that's how I first became aware of it. And then I, I, um, I, I saw a... Uh, an outline of the circuit, and I thought, wait a minute, you know, the, the, the Monaco is a the, the Silverstone of road courses, the Nürburgring in Germany has 176 turns. What's this thing where it, it's, it's all left-hand turns? And so I mentioned it to my dad, and he knew what the Indianapolis 500 was, 
But a lot of the people at that time did not. My friends, they had no idea what I was talking about. But um, anyway, to um, uh, making a long answer out of this, but I was fascinated by these names, and I thought, well, I want to know more about it. And then I found out that there was a, a publication each year called the Indianapolis 500 Yearbook. Well, you couldn't find that in your average uh, bookshop, but we found a place in London, and my mother bought me a copy, and then that just opened up a whole new world. I just loved the not only the names of the drivers, but when I saw the photographs of the cars and how beautifully they were painted and, and um, I know, the chrome exhaust pipes and everything, I thought, oh, this, I, I just fell in love with the thing. And so I um, started memorizing Indianapolis 500 results. And uh, I, I've been given credit for, for a long time now for having a photographic memory, which I do not. I have met people that have a true photographic memory. That's not what I have because it didn't work for schoolwork. And uh, I actually had a struggle for school, but I managed to to uh, work my way through. And as I mentioned earlier, I did go to a grammar school, but I tell people, yeah, I qualified, but I got, I started, I start, I qualified at five to six on the last day and started 33rd. And, um, <laughs> and so what, what I had was a selective, retentive, easy access memory. And that meant that if it was something that I was passionate about, and that, that was the key, then I could, it, memorize it and retain it. And I was going to so, ask you about that. Actually, I was going to ask you about your memory okay. as, as someone who's um, the host of the Leaders and Legends podcast has been called uh, Rain Man by more than a few people uh-huh. because of uh, because of my uh, ability and I uh, to my memory, which sounds a lot like what you do. There are certain things that I can memorize very well and can yeah. recall. Um, Trying to think the weirdest. I remember my Indianapolis Public Schools student ID number, uh, which is beyond obscure. But uh, I did, I did uh, take a fancy to remembering all the kings and queens of England back to Edward the Confessor in order. Really? Yes. But and, and then the the uh, just the, that's a, a whole other thing about uh, you. You probably had selective retentive easy access because I say it was. I had other subjects that I was interested in. I don't want to, you know, get into that now. But I did have the ability to memorize stuff that I cared about. And then, as the years would go by, and and um, when I would get stuck on one, um, I would, uh, I didn't want to look it up. If I knew that I knew it, but it wasn't coming, and I, I, I wanted my brain to do the work for me, and so my. My, my dear wife, who's now deceased, used to say, well, why don't you look it up? You've got all those books. I said, no, I don't want to look it up because I know that I know it <laughs> and I'm going to get it. And then it might be five minutes or it might be a couple of days. But more often than not, it would come. And I thought, you know, keep your brain active to, it, to do calisthenics. And and uh, when I would go on a, on a drive somewhere, you know, if I was going on a, on a trip somewhere by myself, I would recite results to myself and play brain games. And, and um, so anyway, hope it's safe other, to say uh, that line they, of thinking. They, well, your, your love of, of Indianapolis, both the city and the race along with yes. uh, your, uh, 
genial personality are two of the things that cause people to gravitate towards you and enjoy your show and enjoy listening to you. But I have seen you pull stats and facts and drivers from out of absolutely nowhere and looked at the people who are asking you questions or been next to them and have them shake their head in amazement. I tell people having a wonderful memory is both a uh, blessing and a curse. Yeah. But but for you, it's been a blessing ever since you came here, which my research shows the first time you came here was in 64. Mm -hmm. And in 64, don't ask me how old I was. I'm not telling you. (laughs) (laughs) He came over at age two. in 1964, that is A.J. Foyt's second victory. It's also right. the race, I believe, where Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald died. That is correct. Memory serves. Tell me about the first time you walked in to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway when all the people were there and it was absolutely packed and at a fever pitch. What did you, as a young man from southwest England, think about this race and that racetrack? Well, um, I got there. It was planned. I wasn't, I didn't just come for the race. I got there the night I arrived at the track, uh, late afternoon before the first qualifying day. And that was planned. But, uh, when I arrived and, and, uh, they, they gave me the credential, they gave me a bronze badge, which would get me in the garage area, but out the pitch. And, um, it was the realization of a of of a dream. I mean, I had been saving up for about seven years, and now seven years goes by in a hurry. But that was a a, a good chunk of my life. And so, um, what I tell people that that when I arrived, um, it was not a whim. It was it was a it was a mission. It was, you know, something that I've been working on for years. I mean, I actually, I saved up the money. And, uh, you know, it, it took a while. And uh, finally, I'd saved enough that I made the trip. And by this time, I'd memorized tons of stuff. And um, and and so I, I, I came, um, which, you know, for me, wasn't easily done. And, and uh, uh, but I just was, was driven. And I know there's a pun in there somewhere, <laughs> uh, but when I when I had been in contact with a wonderful lady named uh, Miss Frances Durr, who was the director of ticket sales, and I mean I was impressed early on when I first wrote to the track to find out, you know, how does one purchase a ticket, and I was really impressed by the fact that my my questions were answered in a very personal way. There were no form letters. I mean, I and I showed my dad. I said, "Look, I've got this letter from the Indianapolis Speedway. This <laughs> lady, look at this. She has actually answered my questions point by point." And so, um, when I, uh, I ordered the ticket, and the correspondence was over a period of, of, you know, probably six or seven months, when I thought, "I think I'm at the point now where I'm going to be able to go next year, or, or whatever it was." And so when I, you know, sent the note and said, okay, well, I'm, I'm coming. And, and then, uh, shortly before I left, I get this letter from her that said that because you're coming, you know, we're looking forward to come and see us. 
she said, when you get here, come and see me. We're going to give you a credential to get in. And I thought, what? You're kidding me. <laughs> no beg, borrow, steal, or deals. I mean, they, they, they said, we'll give you the credential. I never asked for it. And so when I arrived and, and I got that, and um, then I, re- I, I remember that in those days, it was the old uh, little single-story brick building on the corner of what used to be the corner of the Cleveland Georgetown. And uh, when I was uh, when I, I met the lady, and and uh, some of the others came out, and they were all smiling, and and uh, that was very different from what I thought. It was just sort of a very warm, uh, you know, the Hoosier hospitality I, I experienced immediately. And uh, the, these ladies were, you know, probably went to Speedway Christian Church or St. Chris or whatever, and and. Uh, and evidently, my letters had been shared uh, around, or at least I got that impression, because all of these ladies were kind of looking over the counter and beaming, uh, because he's here. So anyway, after I got the credential, I remember going out of the back door and across to the first-turn grandstand, because they, I knew that you could go up and go up into that stand in turn one, and so I go up there, and the cars are practicing, and I'm looking at the garage area, and it just, I thought, I can't believe I'm here. There it is. It's for real. And then I thought, well, Donald, what are you standing here for? They gave you a credential. You can go over there. So I then uh, headed for the garage area, but it was uh, took a little longer than it would now because in those days, uh, the tunnel was underneath turn two. Uh, the, the, the entrance now between turns one and two, that wasn't there. And so one had to trot <laughs> from turn one all the way over to, to, to turn two to where the motel was almost, and then down the, uh, the through the tunnel and then back across the infield and, and into the garage area. And uh, almost to me, and I'm looking around and all of these people that I am recognizing that are no longer black and white photographs or on film, they're real. And some of them were looking at me and sort of wondering, who on earth is that? I got that early on because I'm wearing a suit and a white shirt and a tie and a pompadour hairstyle <laughs> and uh, what the, uh, the Brits called winkle picker shoes, which were pointed toes. And I definitely didn't look like anybody that would be at the racetrack. And they were thinking, who the heck is that? And uh, anyway, so quickly I uh, began to uh, meet drivers. And uh, it, it was just like magic because word spread very quickly about this English chap that could recite the careers of the drivers, which I could for just about anybody that... Uh, you asked me about or presented me with, and and uh, and um, I was astonished at how a how interested they were, and b how friendly they were. Virtually all of the drivers and the car owners and chief mechanics that I met right off the bat were really nice people, and that that I thought that drivers would. Be, I'm not giving enough chance to answer any ask any questions here. But I really thought that drivers would be very intense, 
um, you know, and that they, that they would have uh, an entourage and, and you couldn't touch or talk to the driver. And I was amazed at how free and easy everybody was. I mean, I was just astonished. And most of them were very interested in what I had done. And so word spread quickly, and all I had to do was walk around, and then somebody would come up and say, hey, this is so-and-so. And I said, oh, yes, I know. Well, tell him about himself. And a lot of them <laughs> thought that I was a put-on or a practical joke, and it was just for three incredible weeks. And uh, anyway, it was just, you know, it, it was when just you came... an experience that I can't explain. Well, that's all right. No, no, no. When you came in... 1964, yeah. did you, were there any drivers, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, any drivers from Britain, from Europe, who were participating in the race that yes. month? Yes, Jim Clark was there, who's Scottish, and uh, Jack Brabham, an Australian, were there, and, uh, but a lot of, but but in fact, Clark had, had made his debut the year before. Brabham had been there in 61, but Clark had come in 63 with the rear range and Lotus and made a huge splash. Right. And so uh, the assumption was, oh, did you come over to see Jimmy Clark? And I said, well, no. <laughs> I wanted to see the Roadsters. And in fact, when I was, uh, again, I'm dating myself, but when I first fell in love with the Indianapolis 500, the drivers didn't have to wear uniforms. You could actually wear a T-shirt if you wanted to. And, and uh, you know, there was, there was very little regard to safety. So I have to say that um, it, it was a lesson in life because what I fell in love with had already changed. But, you know, in the time that it took me to save up the money to come, it had changed quite a bit. And so, honestly, I wasn't very happy about rear engine cars and, and European participation. I wanted to see the, uh, you know, the drivers that I had started out idolizing. Stay on the theme of European drivers. Yep. Did you develop a relationship with Graham Hill, who won the race in 1966, who was from, uh, I think, the London area? He was. Uh, I no, not I. I met uh, I met Graham Hill, um, but it was a very brief, very brief encounter. Um, in fact, it was at Watkins Glen. I didn't even meet him at Indianapolis, and and he didn't have very much to say. But Jim Clark, I had it actually encountered before I came in London. Uh, there was a thing called the Racing Car Show at. Uh, at uh, Olympia out very near Wembley Stadium. And I had met Clark. And uh, whether he remembered me or, or not, but he he was extremely uh, friendly to me. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I right off the bat, I uh, spent a little time with him. And that developed into, you know, for the next few years, he was always extremely nice to me. Uh, but as far as, um, but, but, but Hill, no, uh, Hill was a very interesting fellow. Um, there was a sort of another side to him that I think a lot of people didn't really know. And, uh, as charming and as witty as he was, as I say, I did meet him, but it was very brief. And, uh, so that was just about the extent of that. But, um, 
Were you proud though when he wins? It's a fellow Brit, and he wins the Indianapolis 566. Were you secretly jumping for joy? Oh no, I, no, because I wanted the Americans to win. By the by, the time he won, uh, I I had been at the track in '64 for the for the greater part of three weeks. I went back and said, but I was on holiday, and so and then. And uh, I mean, a lot of stuff happened to me, and uh, I mean, I met Sid Collins uh, right off the bat, and and he became you know like an uncle to me, he was a mentor to me. But anyway, when the race uh, w- was over, and uh, I went, had to go back to England because uh, my holiday was up, but I immediately then thought I've got to pursue this, and so I then went back and and then began the process for obtaining a green card and then coming back the following year on a one-way ticket. And I, I mean, I was rather conservative. I don't think I was a risk taker, but th- these were just things that I had to do. I mean, you just, there are certain things where I think you're just driven and it, it's fate and, and it pulls you along. So anyway, I came back on a one-way ticket and a green card and no job offer. I mean, I just thought I've got to go Something is going to happen. I just feel uh, something's coming, something's good. <laughs> Don't know what it is, but it is going to be. And then so I uh, I just figured that I would try it, and if it didn't work out, then, of course, I could then go back to England. Well, I connected immediately, and uh, another uh, very dear man, very important in my life, Henry Banks, who was a former driver, a former national champion, was now the director of competition for the United States Auto Club, and he hired me. And so as soon as the 65 race was over, uh, four days later, I mean, the race was was uh, was um, was uh, uh, Monday, May the 31st, and uh, I started work on, on Thursday, June the 4th. I started work, or actually, it was actually Friday. But within a week of the race being over, I had a job, and so you know the uh, uh, the you know the the, the the tent came down and everybody moved on to the, to the next race at Milwaukee. But I was working at USAC, and then the drivers were coming in the office all the time on on Sixteenth uh, Street, uh, Forty Nine Ten West Sixteenth Street, and that's where I was for the next uh, almost thirty two years until I finally left and and uh, went to the track. You mentioned Sid Collins as someone who was a mentor, but I I should mention as well, based on a previous conversation you and I had, uh, one of the first, and you correct me if my memory fails, but one of the first people you met and someone uh, you are friends with to this day is named Bob Dorn, who also happens to be my uncle. Yes, I met Bob Dorn very early on. Um, I think he was working with Big Naughty, but I'm not sure. But I, I, uh, I, 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 I'm not sure that he even had an assignment by then, but um, I knew that he'd been on the crew uh, for Foyt and George McNaughty in 1961. In fact, he was the tire man, and uh, so and then also he'd been um, uh, he was a uh, I think he'd known Bob Swikert, and so I yes I knew him fairly early on. I don't recall actually the meeting, but then there's um, some nostalgia going on right now. Uh, I, I don't know if this, uh, uh, if I can explain this very well, but there's a 
there's a place on 16th Street, and it's called Club Venus. It's now closed, but it was the white front, which was a bar, and that's where all the racers hung out. And uh, it was it was like a it was a, a, a fan's dream. Every Thursday night throughout the the rest of the year was movie night, and uh, they had go-go dancers, and a band came on at nine o'clock. But on at six o'clock on Thursday, a fellow would set up a sixteen millimeter projector and run racing movies. And uh, a number of drivers were in there, uh, Bobby Graham and Ronnie Duman and Jim Hurtabees and Von Tinglestad and, and, uh, and A.J. Watson would be in there and, and uh, a lot of, you know, crew types and, and, uh, and uh, Bob Dorn was in there on a regular basis. So I know I, I hung out with him at the, uh, the White Front, which is now for sale. I've been telling people, hey, there's a, there's a landmark on 16th Street for sale. That's where all the races used to go. <laughs> Let me ask you a quick question since you mentioned it. Uh, do you have a favorite racing movie? Oh, a favorite racing movie? Um, probably, uh, do, uh, you mean fiction or, or documentary? Fiction. Uh, oh, fiction. Um, no, not really. Uh, documentary was a, was the the, the film. Uh, the, it was a dynamic film about the 1957 500, which uh, has a little bit of history. They go back six years, and uh, it, it, it's a really good backgrounder on um, you know how we got to where we were at the time. I think that's the one that uh, I I like the best of the of the fictions. No, not really. It, I mean, there haven't been that many that, that are really uh, worth anything. I think probably to please a lady, and um, then also there was a film called The Crowd Roars. It was made in 1932. Has got some uh, neat little vignettes, uh, or at least uh, you know cameo roles by by drivers playing themselves. But no, I don't. That's not. That's not a, a fiction movie that I'm passionate about as far as racing is concerned. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is Indianapolis Motor Speedway legend and beloved Donald Davidson. Donald, you meet a lot of drivers and you get to interact with a lot of drivers. And, yep. and how difficult is it for you to develop friendships with men and women, quite frankly, who are involved in such a dangerous profession? That's a very good question, and I have been blessed with um, having met and come to know quite a number. In fact, it's been very flattering. Several have contacted me just in you know the last few weeks so that they've you know, got a question or you know maybe I can help them with something. 
Um, no, I learned that lesson very early on, and I don't know how to explain that because I think that people that don't understand think you're callous and you don't care. But when I first got interested, when I really got interested, and I'm just entering my teens, uh, you know, the 50s was a very treacherous time, and it was very hard to have a hero. And in no time at all, I mean, I started keeping a you know, little scrapbook going on. And it wasn't long before, you know, drivers would lose their lives. So I sort of came to terms with that early on that they probably weren't going to be around very long. And then when I, my first year at the track, um, I met Eddie Sachs. I did not meet Dave McDonald. In fact, he was the only person in the 1964 lineup that I did not meet. I could have. I was very close to him at one point, but I wasn't into just going up to somebody willy-nilly. But I had I met Sachs and spent a little time with him. And, I mean, this is just a whole other anecdote. i got dozens like this. I mean, I spent time with him, and it was a really neat conversation. And, and uh, he was funny, but he told me stuff. And, Anyway, so then, uh, you know, just a matter of days later, he perishes in the race. And, and uh, so just uh, probably not the answer that you wanted, but decades later, I finally met his widow. And, uh, and then, so the son, who probably was sort of like in his 30s by then, he said, oh, you know, beat my mom. And uh, I addressed her by her maiden name, and she did a double take, and she said, oh, it's right what they say about you then. I said, oh, you know about me? And she said, oh, yes. <laughs> she said, Eddie was very impressed with you, and she was referring to her husband. And I thought, you're kidding me. I met him, spent a little time with him, and then he went home and told his wife about me, and I didn't know that for, you know, probably 30 years or something. But um, but anyway, so then, you know, there were others that, that um, cause they were coming in and out of the office all the time, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working at the United States Auto Club. In 1966, there were seven drivers that lost their lives. It was a, there, there were there were two double fatalities in 1966, and I had met all of the drivers. And then uh, you know, over the years, of course, there there was uh, oh my goodness me, you know, I mean Scott Brayton and Rich Fogler. I mean, I spent a lot of time with those fellows, and we would go and do talks together. And uh, that, that's a whole other thing about um, getting to know the drivers, whereby we would do a talk, and uh, I would already know them. But just it was interesting that if we, if it was sort of like if we drove, like I used to go to Rushville every year, and we'd drive down in May, and, and we're talking about what happened at the track that day and everything. We'd go, we'd do the talk, and then on the way home, They'd slide down in the seat and uh, just tell me all kinds of neat stuff, and that was that was something that I uh, dealt with very early about um, when they share stuff with you. What do you 
report later and what do you not? And there were some things that people told me that they didn't say don't tell anybody necessarily, but I learned to, you know, to be very discreet about uh, what they told me. But, um, but, but I didn't really answer your question, but it was something that I had to deal with a lot when they were just suddenly not there. And um, I can't really explain how you deal with it, but I just, you know, I, I, not that I had met the, the heroes that that, uh, that that perished shortly after I became a fan, but I mean, I as a, as a, as, a, as you know, thirteen and fourteen years old, it happened. <laughs> You'd listen to the news on Sunday night, and uh, the driver that you liked had uh, had lost their lives. So, well, let me ask I you about a particular race. There's a yeah. there's a race that's uh, it's covered still to this day probably more than any other race, and that is 1973. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> it was a particularly yeah. memorable year for multiple reasons. Um, yes, yeah. I can't remember if that's the year where uh, influential Los Angeles Times columnist uh, Jim Murray. Uh, had his lead as gentlemen start your coffins in the Indianapolis oh, there was another 500. One was, uh, was, uh, it was something like ladies and gentlemen of the United States was like, you can now get up off of your knees. <laughs> the Indianapolis 500 was over. Yeah. Um, it was interesting that he actually had a relative in the area. And I don't know what that said. I didn't know that for years. And so he would come back, and uh, but he would, it, you know, that was his style. It wasn't just the Indianapolis 500. Unfortunately, that was his, that was his gig, if you like. And and I remember that Sid. A lot of people didn't like Jim Murray, and Sid was very, very good about going to somebody and talking it over with them, and and. Um, so I know that he did that, but yeah, I know that there was uh, a lot of newspapers. Uh, you know, Jim Murray, of course, uh, uh, that, as I say, that was his uh, his gig, if you like. But a, a lot of there was a lot of anti-racing um, editorials that were done in '64 and '73, and I've I'd long been working at USAC at that time. And what a just a dreadful, dreadful fear. Just the whole month, it was just disaster after disaster and the weather was horrible and and you just wanted to just forget about it so <laughs> well did you did you get the sense that the Indianapolis 500 in particular was in trouble that there would be some sort of effort either uh, within the sport or perhaps legislatively to change oh, the race or- I had that in 1964 I was down in I uh, in turn 1 um, I went down to the inside of turn 1 to watch the start and uh, you know they come by on the pace lap and then the first lap and then the second lap and I thought there's not very many cars came by and then I was aware that people in the stands across the way were standing up and and a lot of the people around me had taken off running, and and I looked, turned around, and saw the black smoke uh, going. Um, and I, my first thought was somebody crashed into the pits, and then that was, you know, fuel in the pits that was on fire. And uh, but um, anyway, I then 
clerk out as well and running and jogging and walking and then thinking, Donald, you know, because it was quiet, you know, the sound of the crowd, but obviously the cars had stopped and it was clear some disaster had taken place. And I remember thinking, walking down the the the, uh, the straightaway, um, walking towards the scene, which was quite a walk, by the way. It was pretty close. <laughs> it was like three quarters of a mile, close to a mile. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, there's been a disaster, and is this it? I mean, I remember walking, clearly thinking, I wonder if the government will step in because something terrible has obviously happened. Is this the end of it? You know, that you you had you, you realized your dream here, that, um, you know, you've been saving for all this time to come. You've come. They gave you the red carpet treatment. You've been taken into the inner circle. Is it? But could it now be over? That actually occurred to me as I was walking down there. And uh, I was, um, this is heavier than I really wanted to be, but uh, I just remember the whole feeling of being down there and uh, seeing the participants and, and how they dealt with the downtime, because clearly there had been a, a disaster. I didn't quite know the extent of it yet, but I, I heard the uh, I heard the rumors going on very quickly. And, and, um, and then the fact that, they then, after a while, uh, cleaned the place up, fired up the engines, and off they took. And uh, But it was a different time. Back then, that's what they did. And I talked to a number of the drivers in retrospect, and, and I say, you know, this wasn't something I went around with a, with a clipboard to interview them, but just when they would get talking about it, it's very, very interesting that the, the way that... Um, that they dealt with it and those with the families and the thoughts that went through their mind when they're waiting there for the thing to restart. But yeah, I thought then it was over. And then uh, in 73, um, for somebody like me that was trying to promote the place and say how great it was, it was a little bit of a hard sell. <laughs> oh, I, I believe it completely. I wanted to ask you if, this was actually the first question I wrote down because I want to make sure I asked it and I don't want to forget. So while we're on the subject of races, uh, my first race was 1982, which I believe is the uh, yep. John Cock Mears duel, which remains my yep. favorite race I've attended. Do you have one, two, maybe three races that stand out to you that when you're driving in your car or, or you're sitting on in your back porch, you're thinking, man, what a great race this was. <laughs> Well, I think 82, to me, was the greatest finish. It wasn't the closest finish, but the, the whole thing about um, just, uh, and I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, there's been some great moments uh, that just lasted a few seconds, and sometimes it wasn't much of, of, of an event. Maybe the, you know, the whole event wasn't that great, but there will be something that will save it, if you like. That's what the people remember, you hope. But 82, where there were several minutes, it wasn't just like a, a sudden close finish and it was just a few seconds. There was build-up to that. And I remember that, that, that John Cock actually was leading over Mears before the final stops. But you just figured, and Mears was fairly new on the scene then, but he's the Penske driver, and you figure, well, he's, the, he's going to be able to beat John Cock at the finish. 
And so when they made the final stops, uh, Mears came in first, I think lap 183, I think, and he did a stop, and, and uh, it was like a 16, 17 second stop with, with a full load of fuel and everything, which they didn't need to do. And off he went, which extended John Cox's lead further. Well, then when John Cox came in, um, he did a time stop of 11 seconds, which was what they had figured out only the amount of fuel that he needed to finish. And they did a time stop, which at that time, I don't know that that had been done. And so off he went in 11 seconds, and the crew are high-fiving it. But then you realize, good Lord, Penske stopped first, and they got snookered. And um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, John Cox's lead was, was uh, I, I, you know, 13, 14, 15 seconds, I think. But then Mears went to work. And so, the, you know, Carnegie was that is, uh, was a, incredibly important in the history of the track for how he built the crowds, I think. And that's just a little side editorial there. But uh, he had the time of his life because there were no jumbotron screens. And rather than it just being a lap or two, there were several laps where you could, uh, you, you, you were aware that the gap was, was 11 seconds and 10 and 9. And then it got to be the point where you could see it here with John Cobb would come out of the turn and down the spread. He went and Mears, and he said, golly, he's closer than last time. And then, of course, uh, and I remember thinking, uh, I remember thinking this, this is shaping up possibly in, in a few laps here to be a terrific finish. If a yellow comes out, it will destroy the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself under my breath, don't throw a yellow, don't throw a yellow. And then I think with like two or three laps to go, Steve was running third, and he had an engine failure. There was like a, it wasn't a huge puff of smoke, but there was a puff. And he pulls to the inside, and I thought, oh, no, don't throw a yellow, don't throw a yellow. <laughs> Mercifully, they did not. And then we were treated to this incredible final lap or two where Mears almost caught him, but not quite. To me, that was probably the greatest finish. And I remember that race, not only because I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was my first one, but my brother, Michael, uh, who I do not believe attended a single day of high school in the month of May in his entire <laughs> career. And he would actually go with someone you may or may not know. And that's the late uh, Scott Rimke. And we all grew up together yes. on the East side. Scott. The oh, Rimke's I knew a, Scott Rimke very, very well indeed. Yes, he was terrific. Yeah. Yes. The Rimkeys are a wonderful, he, wonderful he loved piece the front of engine cars. <laughs> yes, he did. He was a he's a real gearhead, for lack of a better term. And the, the Rimkeys are a terrific uh, East Side family. And I'm sure uh, Scott and my brother Michael uh, uh, hitchhiked or took the metro back then out to the track many times. But I remember standing next to my brother, not really understanding kind of how important it was with my brother with a watch, timing how mirrors was reeling yeah. in John Cock with every yeah. lap. Yeah. And I also remember and speak to this because I want to make sure my memory is correct. John Cock won in 73. Yes. And how happy people were for John yes. Cock to win another yes. race after 73 was such a tragic year. Well, I will tell you that I knew John Cock fairly well. In fact, he even came over to my house 
uh, during the summer of 73. And um, I, I, for some reason, I got to know him very well. I did, I did not a lot of drivers came to my house, but he did. And uh, so anyway, he, told, he, he would share with me at different times. And he said, really, he said it was sort of about August, September, when he said I started getting um, letters from people saying, you know what, you know, May was so horrible and we wanted to forget it and we never congratulated you. But, you know, come, you know, but now we're thinking about it. Your face is going to be on the board, won a trophy. So, it, you know, it's it was three months ago, but congratulations. And then when he won that thing in 82, there were several times. It looked like he was going to win in 77 and did. But when he won in 82, uh, so my, my, uh, my line for that was that John Cock uh, had, after winning the race that nobody wanted to remember, he won the race that nobody could ever forget. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I just remember people saying, well, I'm glad he won another race yes. and his only victory isn't that, that cursed year. Let me yes. ask you another question that I had written down because I didn't want to forget. Last year, about this time, my son was graduating from uh, Ron Colley on his way to Purdue to go uh, train to be an airline pilot. His yes. graduation present from uh, my brother, Michael, who is currently an airline pilot for Republic, but his graduation present was from us was a trip around the track in the ride along program. Oh, really? He abs. I'll send you a picture of it. He absolutely, he came, comes out of the car, gets out of the car and he's just staring into space. Like I can't believe <laughs> I've just done. Uh, have yeah. you ever done that? Have you ever gone around? Who, who, who did he ride with? I, it was my brother Michael did it with Mario. Mario was his driver. Oh, okay. I, don't yeah. who, I don't know who Andrew's driver was, but just the look on his face when he yes. when he got out of the car was, oh my God, I, I, th that's the greatest thing that I've ever experienced in my entire life. What is well, it like? What was it like when you did it? And who was your driver? Well, I don't need the answer to the question, but I'll, I'll talk in a hurry. I've actually done it four times. The first time I did it was with Davey Hamilton when the program was brand new, and they weren't running as fast as they, they were to do later. And then there was a young fellow named Martin Plowman who was a Brit, and he said, you know, have you done the Tuesday? And I said, yes, I have. He said, well, would you like to go with me? I said, well, yeah. you know, I said, I've, I've done it. He said, well, you know, I get a... They, they give us so many comps. He said, I would be honored to have you ride with me. So I went with Martin Plowman. Well, then I got to do it um, with Al Unser and with Mario. And when I did it with Al, it was considerably faster. And uh, they had, um, <laughs> they, they had, uh, they, they'd upped it a little bit. And so uh, when I did it with Mario, and I'm sorry, I'm probably using up all of your time here, but, uh, when I had the opportunity to do with it, they put me down to the front of the line, and I was a little embarrassed by that. And he he came up to me, getting ready to go out, and he, and he turns kind of sideways, and, and all panicked, said to me, uh, you don't want to be the first one out. I said, oh. He said, I'll get the tires warmed up. And so I stood <laughs> to one side, and I think he did like two or three rides before they put me in. And... Um, 
both with he and Al, I thought, golly, I think they did something a little extra special here. So I asked them about the speeds. And uh, so they both said um, uh, about 187 at the start-finish line and 177 through the turns. And I said on both occasions, well, I said I wasn't aware of any deceleration through the turns. And they said, we don't. There is no deceleration. It's just that it scrubs off 10 miles an hour going through the turns. But uh, anyway, yes, it was a heck of a ride with Al and, and Mario. And what I would tell people, uh, you know, responding to you, you know, that crazed look where you don't know where you are, uh, I tell people, cherish every second of it, concentrate, because it's over before you know it. Sometimes there's a lot of waiting around before you get in, but when you get in there, it's over before you realize it. The next thing you know, they're coming down the pit lane and, and helping you out of the car, so just cherish every second. It, it's really, it gives you a very different perspective of, uh, of what it's like out there. And then you're still not running as fast as they run when, you know, when they're practicing qualifying. Is that something that you sense is, I want to say is underrated. That may not be the best word or underappreciated, but you cannot fathom how incredibly talented these drivers are. Yeah. Yes. They're very, very precise. Uh, Because, you know, again, back in the roadster days and, and the brick track, there was you know, they'd be sawing away at the wheel, but now it's very, very precise. I don't know what... The late Jerry Steven told me that he said the steering wheel only moves four degrees per lap, and I don't know if that may have changed now. So you're very, very precise. And then, of course, the, the you know, physical, uh, just the heat in the cockpit, and, and it's just a, it's a very, very, very mentally and physically demanding uh, situation. One of the best parts of the 500 doesn't even take place while the cars are racing around the track. It's all the tradition and events that happen before yes. the race actually starts. Do you have yes. a particular favorite moment? Uh, the, well, I love the pre-race ceremonies. I think in, in recent years, my thrill has been... Um, might, you might think rather mundane, but when the former winners are taken out on pace uh, on the backs of pace cars, and I'd like to think I had something to do with that in 2011, <laughs> I thought, hey, with all the, you know, the, 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 we've got the Kardashians and all these other people that come in as celebrities. I think the crowd would like to see the drivers, and so typically there'll be 12, 13, 14, 15, and some years it's just been incredible, and so. When the pace cars go out with one driver per car, and it's Foyt, and it's Mario, and it's Parnelli Jones, and it's Rutherford, and it's the youngsters, and you hear the crowd just roar, they cheer, and, uh, you know, they don't have to be told over the PA who it is, and there's no name written on the site. They just know, and um, that, to me, is... uh, that that's a huge thrill to me when you hear the crowd's ovation when the drivers go out because the people have been going for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and, uh, you know, they just show their appreciation for the winners. That I think that to me is my highlight. How well did you get to know Jim Neighbors 
And what did he think about how he was so beloved at the Speedway? Um, I don't know the second part, but yes, I did know him a little bit. Um, he was he was a very very kind man, um, and I think surprised. I tell you, the thing that really surprised me about it was how tall he was, because I think he was probably six two at least, maybe six three. That was a surprise because on TV he didn't not he didn't come over as a tall person, but uh, just he was just a really very, very sweet-natured person, and uh, he would come into the um, uh, he'd come into the gift shop uh, normally on Saturday after they'd been downtown to, to ride the parade. He would come into the gift shop. He'd come in the back way, and when he'd come in the gift shop, all the ladies would call out and he'd say, "Hi, girls!" You know, I'm back again, and they would hug him, <laughs> and he was just just a just a very, very, very beloved person. And I I found that interesting because, um, you know, as far as the contribution, and I don't, I just find this fascinating because it's for singing a part of a song. It's not even the whole song. I mean, if you, if you time it, it's like 35 to 40 seconds. <laughs> but if he couldn't do it, you know, it was a, it was a calamity, <laughs> and uh, I think he just—I um, don't know really what he thought about it, but uh, but just beloved is is truly the term, and uh, um, just just a just a very very nice man. When you get that, a chance, I remember there was there was, there was one year when when uh, he was sitting at the at the drivers' meeting, and Mario had arrived late. And I don't think there was any seats. And when he saw Mario, he got up and he was going to move to make room for Mario to sit down. And I thought, what a, just what a sweetheart of a man to, to even think of that. What's it like to be either in the winner's circle or talk to the driver immediately after uh, he has left the winner's circle? I'm assuming that these race car drivers and I have not met any of them per se, even though I've shaken their hand perhaps a few times, but never, never have I had a conversation. I'd love to have a driver or two, especially an old time driver for lack of a better term on the leaders and legends podcast, but their whole life has been to win this race. And AJ, AJ Foyt said it so well where he said, I'm paraphrasing, nobody heard of anybody until they win Indianapolis. And then everyone knows who you are. Yes. What's it like to talk to these drivers after they've achieved their lifelong dream? Well, um, I don't really know how to answer that. I, For a while, I would go back into the garage after the race was over and then spend time with them. You know, sometimes it might be like a half hour, 45 minutes after the race. Uh, as far as much closer than that, I think that... Um, uh, I did manage to encounter Dario Franchitti uh, in 2012, and um, he had done the victory ceremony, and then I was standing, I, I knew that the people were waiting in the old conference room, which is gone now, on the, on the ground floor. I knew that he would be coming down from the second floor on the elevator, and I thought, well, I've got a moment here. 
I'm going to be on the post-race show, but I've got a few minutes. I'm going to stand here and see if I can just give him a little wave. And uh, this really pinched me moment because the elevator door opens, and there's several people come off the elevator with Frank Heedy. And uh, he, he still, his face was red, and he's got dirt marks on his cheeks and everything, and he's still, you know, still vibrating. And I just gave him a little wipe, and he came over, gave him a little, gave a little wave, I should say, and he came over, and he put his face right in mine, and he, with his, his, his eyes glistening, and the, the people in the press room, they're waiting for him to go in and, and talk to the media, and he comes up to him, and he says, Jackie Stewart sent me a message. And uh, that was just really a very special moment for me. But um, as far as how it changes their life and everything, um, I don't know really that I could uh, give you an answer on that. But, I mean, I would take it a step further. And the number of drivers that have told me that just driving in the race changed their lives. I've had several tell me, you know what, I had one start. And I was, you know, I, I was 27th or something in my one start, but it changed my life. It opened all kinds of doors because I had driven in the Indianapolis 500. So for the winners, then, you know, multiply that by many times. Mostly, not only, but mostly in the last few minutes we have with Donald Davidson here on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We grew up, my family grew up, partly because of my uncle Bob's association rooting for AJ Foyt. Yeah. You came in 1964 when he won the race a second yeah. time. Uh-huh. Have you developed or what was it like to, to um, interact and get to know someone like AJ and Mario and Al Lunzer and Rick Mears? You mentioned earlier, they were just really down to earth people, but uh, Mr. Foyt yeah. had a reputation for being somewhat irascible. Uh -huh. Well, he was very good to me right off the bat. In fact, um, I had I had met him, and he was he, he was actually a little bit shy when I met him. And uh, forgive me for these. Uh, I'm a horrendous name dropper. Uh, one day, I was walking through the garage area, and after I'd been around for probably it, it was probably two, three, four days before the race. And um, it was not a practice day, so qualifying was over. And here comes Foyt and Parnelli together, uh, dressed in civvies. And Foyt stopped and said, hey, you're pretty good about the crash. How are you for the future? And I said, well, I think all the rear-engine cars are going to blow up, and it's going to be between you and, and Parnelli and the roadsters. And they both started laughing and you know, you know, punching each other in the shoulder and so on and so forth. So when the race was over, and I didn't have a duty in 64, so I, you know, I went up and down the pits and Sid had me on the broadcast for a little bit. So when the race was over, I figured out that if I went down to the virtue area, which was at the south end of the pits, where the, the guards were ready with the ropes because the car, the, the winning car would come down the straightaway and then turn left at the end of the pitch and go into this grassy area, and I knew that, and that the guards would then run around in half circles and then join up with ropes so you couldn't get in. And so I thought, golly, you know, if I can hold on to the rope here and run around with them, 
I might be able to get in the shots and be in the background, and sure enough, it worked. Anyway, so then when the um, uh, when the the the, the reef and the milk and all of that was over, and then it was time that and the cars had been flagged in, so then it's time for fleet to go out on the back of the pace car, which was uh, was uh, the, the Ford Mustang. So he gets on the back, and Tony Holman's in the front, and and crew members, and so on and so forth. And as it was working its way through the crowd, Hoyt spotted me and said, hey, he said we were going to win. And I was astonished that he would um, w- w- would think of that. Well, uh, th- during the next few years, I didn't really know him very well. I mean, Rutherford, I knew a lot better than and Al. Eventually, it took me a little while to, to really get to know him. Um, but then, uh, over the years, then Foyt sort of started to mellow a little bit. And one of the most incredible uh, experiences of my life was George Bignotti passed away, and there was a celebration of life held in the old uh, conference room, which, again, is, is not there anymore. And we thought there would be... I was asked to do a eulogy, and or at least, you know, do a tribute to, to George, and uh, so Foyt showed up, and he and I sat at the table, and nobody else came up, and it was astonishing because Foyt was doing Bignotti stories, and we probably did forty-five minutes, and we even took questions, and Parnelli Jones. Uh, had been invited up and declined. He sat in the audience, but he raised his hand. And so we said, uh, uh, yes, sir, the, the gentleman uh, with, the, with the white cap. Anyway, the, the point is that I was pinching myself because Foyt was just telling stories, and, and it was just an incredible experience. I mean, just to, to, to uh, again, name-dropping, forgive me, but, but me and Foyt both laughing together I just thought that's just one of the greatest memories of my life. I used to work at the uh, Holiday Inn Airport owned by uh, the Dora family, Jim Dora, who also uh, was heavily involved in the Motor Speedway Motel. But I remember working at the hotel on race weekend. This is the I'd come out of the military, come out of the army in 1990, and I worked there for two or three years. And Checking people in for race weekend was always my favorite part simply because I got a chance to talk to people from all over the country. And the the question I asked them is on Friday when they checked in, have you ever been to the 500 before? And they would say, no, most of them would say no. And I'd say, I'll be here Sunday night after the race or Monday when you check out. Just tell me what you think. And on Sunday night, when they would come back from the race, you know, in the early evening or whenever, and they would come back and uh, we would have a conversation, the look and the expression of absolute awe that came over their face, like they have just witnessed something that they weren't fully prepared for, A, do you talk to people about that? And B, even after 50 plus years, do you still feel it? 
Oh yes, absolutely. And I, but I, I, uh, I'm going to go off in another direction. Uh, I love going out because the Crown, one of your sponsors, and I was actually thinking about this, having no idea you're going to bring this up, that the uh, the, the Crown Plaza out there is is the old Holiday Inn, uh, right. right by where it where the, when it used to be when the airport was ten minutes from the track <laughs> and so easy to get to. Uh, that's the that's the old Holiday Inn, and I've done so many functions out there. So I'm really not answering your your question very well. But um, yeah, the the, uh, the the people that have never been before, um, I don't know whether they quite know what to expect, and I don't know that it grabs them all the first time. But I I um, I, I think it's very different to what they imagined it would be. And I think part of it was just the overall spectacle. But then also, I think a lot of it is the electricity that was created by the people around them. I think they get the vibes. where It's more than just cars going around. It's the passion with the people that are around you that have been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years. I think that's, that's part of it, too. And we should definitely add Memorial Day and yes. TAPS and yes. the, the presence oh, of the military. Very, that, that's one of the most moving things is when they play TAPS. The people that you, you look across the way and see all the handkerchiefs out. And deservedly so. Yes. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Donald Davidson, world-famous historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, adopted Hoosier, and someone who was very generous with his time today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. If you want to do another one of these, I got a lot of stories. <laughs> well, let's do that. I would be very honored to have you on again, and I would... I wrote down about uh, 647 questions and I got about through <laughs> five of them. And so let's, let's do it again, maybe closer to the race uh, as it happens. I would love that. I would, I would really love that. I just love doing radio and, and podcast. Well, well, thank you very, very much. And we appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.